0: So, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 is where we are going to be. Today I want to start and we're going to begin a new sermon series. For the next four weeks we're going to go through the growth and the maturity of the Christian believer. Basically, I want to look at each level of Christian maturity and I want to identify three things. I want to identify what God expects of us at each level of maturity. I want to look at how he deals with us in two ways the first way being how he blesses and rewards us and the second way being how he disciplines us and then i also want to look at the third thing being our response to god at each level of maturity Um, for those of you who don't know i've broken it down into five different levels of maturity for each christian the first being a reference back to psalms 139 the unformed substance of a believer or the fetus. This is basically the person that has not yet come to Christ but is in the process. They're Maybe they're God-curious, maybe they're God-seeking. Reformed theology likes to reference it as the regeneration which precedes faith. I don't know if I would go that far, but I do believe that there's some type of sanctification, some type of wooing of the Spirit, some type of calling that starts to occur before someone actually comes to the point of conversion before someone actually comes to the point where they confess jesus christ as our lord and savior there's some kind of change and appropriation plowing of the ground tilling of the heart something starts to occur in a believer before they actually come to that point of conversion i know personally in my own life there were several weeks where i felt god calling me i felt the leading and the beginning to be god curious before i actually gave my life to the Lord some people this may take years where they seek different religions and they start to seek out different philosophical ideas knowing that there's something more that there's something beyond the natural and it may take them several years maybe even a decade to finally come to the point to where they realize the truth that is in Jesus Christ some people it may take five minutes they may come in to church they may hear an altar call and that may be all she wrote and they're done. They give their life to the Lord on the spot. Not everybody's process is quick and not everybody's process takes a long time, but there is some type of work. And that's the forming of the substance that we looked at in Psalm 139. God said in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's talking about a physical creation, but I believe that's also talking about a spiritual creation. Anyone that gets saved, anyone that becomes a child of God does not become a child of God by accident. It's the working of God that allows us the ability to become a child of God in the first place. So the first level of Christian maturity is gonna be the unformed substance or the fetus. The next step would be an infant, and then it becomes a little child, and then an adult, and then finally a father or a mother of the faith. And again, on each one of those levels, I want to look at what God expects of a Christian at each level. Of maturity. Today we're going to highlight the unformed substance and the infant of God, and then next week we'll go forward and move on into a child of God and so on. I also want to look at how God deals with us, how He blesses us, rewards us, how He disciplines us, and then finally what our reaction and our relationship and response to God at each level of maturity should be. So I want to do a brief recap, and I want to make a confession to you. So, my confession is, I preached last Sunday, you know, we had finished up the series on John 3.16 on foundations, and then we did communion, and then last Sunday I preached on Psalm 139. Monday evening, I was distraught. I'm just going to be a confession, be plainly honest. I was distraught because usually I know exactly what I'm going to preach the coming week. As soon as I get out of church on Sunday, I already have my mind formulating what I'm going to preach the next Sunday. Monday evening, I had no idea... And to make my confession worse, I was actually talking to my wife, and I was being a little bit of a baby, if I can make that um, statement to you. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to preach this Sunday. And her first reaction is, it's Monday. (laughs) Like, I mean, come on, be serious. You know, it's not pressing it. It's not like you're walking up to the pulpit and have no idea. You've got a week to figure this out but I really just had no idea because I don't want to just get up here and preach something random. I want to preach something that I know the Spirit of God is going to lead us into and to use for our edification and growth as a body. But I had no idea what I was going to preach. And so finally after listening to my whining, I guess it would be called, Faith is like, you know what, you just need to go in the morning and you need to spend some time with God and figure it out. So I go, the next morning I get up early earlier than normal and I just spent some time alone with God and God began to show me something and the reason I'm making this confession to you is because I don't want anyone to think that I'm so skilled at articulating a sermon series or a plan that would stretch this long but God began to show me every message that i preached since I've been here and how it's all been in a flowing plan we got here and the first Sunday that we were here was triumphal entry so you know I've preached a message on the hope that is in Christ, and the only true hope is the hope that is in the biblically sound picture of Christ. And then, of course, on Easter, everyone preaches the resurrection, because that's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't normally preach a message according to the holiday. I don't preach a Father's Day message just because today's Father's Day. I didn't preach a Mother's Day message on Mother's Day. I just don't do that. But on Easter, I take the opportunity to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ because I feel like that is a message that should be honored and celebrated and preached every Easter. That's my favorite holiday. That's just my convictions. It doesn't have to be anyone else's. But so I preached the resurrection and I tied the first two messages together saying that the biblically sound hope that we have in Christ is only available because Christ is raised from the dead. Paul says that if Christ is not risen, then we are of most, all men most miserable. If Christ isn't risen, then we're still dead in our sins. But continuing on after that, I wanted to start a series so we were on the same foundation, on the same plane. If you guys remember the John 3.16 series, we continually said that a man that builds his house upon the sand is the equivalent of someone that builds a house upon fragmented doctrine. Because sand is nothing more than fragments of a broken up rock. Jesus Christ is the rock and an accurate biblical perspective presentation of Jesus Christ is the rock that we build our house, our spiritual house on. So if we're building our house on sand, it's because we're building our house on fragmented doctrine. And I didn't want us to do that. So we went through John 3.16 and we laid out what is salvation. So that way when someone asks us what is salvation, we all have the same answer. So we went through the five weeks and the, each week we picked a different point, and We asked ourselves the question, salvation is all of what? And so week one we had salvation is all of grace. Week two, salvation is all of God. Week three, salvation is all of Christ. Week four, salvation is all of faith. Week five, salvation is all of eternity. And we preached a message accordingly so that we could then make the statement when we were finished with the John 3.16 series that we are saved by the grace of God, through Christ, by faith, and it is forever. And then last week... I'm sorry, then we preached a message on communion and showed the sacrifice of Christ, how his body was beaten and bruised and he was spit on and his beard was pulled out and he bled from every pore and precipice of his body. How he was beaten and his visage or his appearance was marred more than that of any man ever. How his blood was ever living and everlasting and how that is where our covenant and our faith is established and founded is in his blood, in him. And then last week we preached Psalm 139 and we established several points about who God is. We established that He is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere-present, or always-present. And then we realized what God can do because of those three things. And we looked at Matthew 6 to see what God will do, that He is a good Father and He is omnibenevolent, or all-good, always-good. And then we wanted to look at why. Why is he mindful of man? Who is man that he should be mindful of him? And our answer to that question was, we see Jesus. And we know that because of Jesus, because he is, so are we in this world. As he is, so are we in this world. We know that because of Jesus, God loves us. Because of Jesus, God doesn't see us as sinful beings, but as righteous beings in Christ. So we established that picture. And the reason I'm going through all of that is because God showed me on Tuesday morning when I was studying and I was asking God what direction I should go, He wanted me to go into the direction of Christian maturity in the steps. And so everything that we've looked at from the first week that we got here that our hope is in Christ, our hope is in the resurrected Christ, the plan of salvation, communion, what Christ paid so that we could have that opportunity to come to Christ and to be saved, to experience the power of conversion. And then looking at Psalm 139, what God can do and what God will do and why He will do it, we come to the Christian maturity. That God is our Father and that God loves us. And as a father, the term Father implies that there's children. John, 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I wanted you to know that God is preparing us as a people. We're going through this journey to figure out what is Christianity? What's the foundations of Christianity? What are we capable of, rec- of as Christians? Now we're going to look at what are we expected of? Because so often in the church, we have somebody come in that doesn't know God and we look at how they're dressed and we condemn them for how they're dressed when they have no idea of who God is. They have no idea of church etiquette because they haven't grown up in church. They're just God-curious. They're that unformed substance, and yet we condemn them because they're not acting and behaving like an elder in the church. So often we see people that come in and they're new believers, and maybe they got saved last week and they come in this week, and in a conversation, maybe they let a cuss word or two slip. And we, how dare they? But we don't understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't always just... And they're... Perfectly righteous and sanctified in all their ways. Sometimes it's a slow process. It's a learning process. I look at my own son and I look at the intimacy of a father between his son. My son does some things that aren't actually correct, and, but they're my favorite things. The way that he says oval, he says fofal, F-O-F-A-L, fofal, not oval. But that endears him to me. I love it when he does that. And thank you does not have, or does not start with a K, but he says kank you. Not thank you, but kank koo. But it's adorable and I love it. Just the same way, I'm not saying that God loves our sin. Be careful, don't hear that. But in the same way, as we grow and we strive for perfection, as we strive for sanctification, we strive for righteousness, God loves our effort because He's our Father. And so we need to understand how God deals with us at each level of Christian maturity. So 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's the key verse, the verse that I want to look at. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. so that we might become the righteousness of God. And a lot of translations will actually end that by saying, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Verse I wanted to look at. The rest of it, looking at the ministry of reconciliation, the love of Christ that controls us or constrains us, the fact that He lived and died so that we might live, all of that is just simply highlights to the things that we've been going over these past few weeks. But verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This right here is when we asked and we looked at John 3.16 and Nicodemus asked the question, how can a man be born again? Can he go into his mother's womb a second time? And Christ was like, no, you're talking about a natural birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You're talking about the birth that's of water. I'm talking about the birth that is of the Spirit. In Christ, you're a new creature. The moment that you say that prayer, the moment that you make that step, the moment that you experience that conversion, the moment that you are saved, you become a new creature. You go from an unformed substance or a fetus to an infant. You make that transition from a God-seeker or someone who's God-curious or someone who's experiencing that pre-salvation sanctification or regeneration, if you like the reformed term there, and you become a child of God, an infant of God. As an infant of God, what does God expect of us as an infant? Before we even go to the Scripture, what do we expect of an infant? I'm gonna tell you guys a story. One of the most memorable days of my entire life was June 22nd of 2016. My wife's not here, so she has no. You guys may not have no idea what that date is. That's the date my son was born. When my son was born it changed everything about my life. I learned more the moment he was born about God than I had learned in all of my study. I knew terms, I knew, you know, theological statements and positions, I knew categorizations of, you know, different types of Christianity, different denominations. I knew all of this, but I truly learned about the nature and the attitude of God the moment I became a father. And every single father in this room knows what I'm talking about because a mother and science has proven this, or psychology has at least, a mother becomes attached to her mom- her baby the moment she's pregnant. And through the process of pregnancy, a mother becomes attached. That's why a miscarriage or losing a baby is so sometimes so much more difficult on the mother than it is the father because the mother already is carrying and holding that child. A father, it hits a father the moment he holds the baby. I'll never forget it as long as I live. They, my, my wife, we had a difficult pregnancy. It was so difficult, she dealt with something called Braxton Hicks where the last two months of the pregnancy she was actually experiencing labor level contractions consistently for two months. And she actually got so severe that the last six to seven weeks she was put on bed rest and couldn't get out of bed. That was all cautionary because we lost our first child. And so the pregnancy was kind of scary every time, you know, something didn't look right or she didn't feel right. We made so many trips to the hospital. Like, I know her water hasn't broke, but they say some people's water doesn't break. You know, is she in labor? Is she not in labor? You know, just freaking out. And she was freaking out worse than I was, but I had no idea what to do. But they did the C-section. They performed the operation. They cleaned Asher off and they handed him to me because she couldn't really move because they had given her a spinal tap. And so I got to hold him first. And, you know, in the midst of crying and snot running everywhere because you have a baby that's just been given to you, I immediately learned something about God. Grace. Because I started out as the most holiness preacher that maybe I've ever heard, you know, bordering on legalism, like wanting, you know, I don't get why you don't get it. It's black and white. you know. Don't sin. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do this. you know. Do's and don'ts of Christianity. But I had no real concept of what grace was. Even though God had shown me so much grace bringing me and delivering me from a sinner, I had no true concept of what grace was until I held that baby boy. And then I knew in that instance that my love for him was so strong that it had absolutely nothing to do with his actions. He could do anything that he wanted. And I might be upset at his action, but it would not change my love for him. And it truly wrecked my world. That even if he grew up and he strayed from the faith, my love would still be for him. I'd still want him to come back. Even if he hated me, I would still pursue a relationship with him because that's my son. And you know what my expectancies of him were? And that's why i bringing it back around. At that moment, my only expectancy of him was to just be in my arms. You know, I wanted him later on to eat. You know, I expected him to, you know, poop. I expected him to cry. I expected him to sleep. Didn't really expect much more than that. Eat, poop, cry, sleep. That's kind of like the major uh, functions of a baby. But that's all I expected of him. I didn't expect him to get up and tell me, you know, the larger and shorter catechisms of the faith. I didn't expect him to get up and to be able to go read Melville's Moby Dick or anything like that. I expected him to lay in my arms to simply... Be in my presence. That's all I expected of him. If you want to turn, we're going to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. I'll give you guys a second to turn there. So, is that what God expects of us as infants? as infants in the faith, what does God really expect of us? 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, anger, contentment, all of that, put it away. All deceit, lying, deception, manipulation, put it away. Hypocrisy, all faking Christianity, all acting, put it away. Envy, jealousy, put that away. Slander, all gossip, all trash talking, put that away. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Some translations say long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow up into salvation or that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, there's things in this word that are considered milk. They're considered foundational growth things. I was in a conversation earlier this week with a young lady and she had never really delved into reading her word and she asked me where do I go? What do I read? And so I wrote out a list for her of books that I would recommend her to go to and I also wrote out a list of books that I would recommend her to wait before she goes into. And this may sound crazy coming from a pastor but if you don't know God truly and you're not more mature in the faith, I recommend the same thing to almost everybody. Stay away from the book of Revelation. Stay away from 90% of the Old Testament, at least for a while. Go to the Gospels and learn who Jesus is. Learn about His character, learn about His teachings. And once you begin to learn and see who Jesus is and how He handles situations, how He reacts towards those who think that they got it all together, and then how He reacts to those who are sinners and who have no idea and can consciously, humbly admit that they need Jesus, the two different reactions and the two different manners in which is He approaches those people. Learn who Jesus is. Learn how much God loves us in sending His Son. And once you get to know who Jesus is, then start to move into the epistles Learn what that means to us as believers. Learn how that can apply to our lives. Learn the ins and the outs of the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus. Learn about the operation of the church and then begin to move into other books and the whole time saturate it in Psalms. Teach yourself how to praise God. Maybe even work in some Proverbs so you can learn and grow in wisdom but learn who God is, learn who Jesus is, and learn how to worship. And then move into Revelation. And then move into some of the deeper passages of the Old Testament, like the burdens of Jeremiah and the prophecies of Isaiah and the condemnation that comes from Ezekiel. Then move into that and then move into the history. Because there's there's a powerfully profound thing that we learn in nature. An infant needs milk. And while it's an infant, whether it's breast milk or it's formula, that's all they need for a while. And then we start to work in pureed carrots and different types of baby food that's basically a liquid equivalent just with a tiny bit of substance. Maybe we add in some of that infant rice or infant cereal in there so that they get to learn to handle that substance. Stay away from the green beans. They are terrible. As a a young father, I was like, I'm not going to give my son anything until I taste it first because I don't want him eating something awful. Worst decision of my life. It took me like two days to get the taste of that baby food green bean out of my mouth. It was awful. But the point that I'm making is they need milk and only milk. If you gave a newborn one two-day-old baby and you tried to give them a piece of steak, it would kill them. It would kill them. They would choke on it. They couldn't process it. Even if they could get it down their throat, their stomach couldn't handle it, and it would kill them. But now if you took a grown man or a grown woman and you tried to sustain them on milk and nothing but milk, they would die. There's a point in time where these things start to be added in, and that's what I want to go through as Christians, studying this Christian maturity in this journey, learning how we should be handled and what should be expected of us. God expects us right here as newborn infants. Desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word so that we may grow. Two expectancies. Desire the milk of the Word and grow. After losing my daughter and holding my son in my arms, one of my expectancies was was for him, don't die. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're holding the baby. You, I mean, you're like, what do I do with this thing? It's so tiny. I don't, I don't have any idea. Your expectancy is like, Lord, don't let me hurt this child on accident, by negligence. Like, you're so diligent. You're freaking out. As you become a parent and you're a parent longer, you start to let some things go as far as you're not like, you can't hold them. You can't hold them. Now you start to let people hold them. Maybe you let the baby out of your sight to play with the other little kids. But you're so diligent because you're so worried and nervous like I'm responsible for this life God does not want a baby Christian to be choked out because we force them something that they can't take I'm not saying that everyone in here is a spiritual infant but I'm saying that in any given church of one to two thousand people there's every different type of spiritual maturity in a church some people are unformed They're not yet saved. They may think that they are, but they may not be. Some people are infants. They may have been saved for 30 years, but they've never really taken the milk and grown up in the maturity and the faith. Some people may be ready to be fathers and to reproduce a ministry of their own, and they just haven't tapped into that yet. But in any given church, there's people at every aspect and spectrum of maturity. And so we're going through this series so that you know whatever maturity level you're at, what's expected of you. And as an infant, Peter tells us, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if you've tasted that the Lord is good. And tasting that the Lord is good, that's an implication. If you've experienced Jesus, you've experienced His saving power, you've experienced God's love for you, and you've seen the goodness of God and His desire for you, that He is for you, not against you, that He gave it all so that He could have you, by the way, he gave it all so that he can have it all. He doesn't get it and give a partial commitment, so he doesn't desire a partial commitment. He desires you to be 100% committed to the faith, 100% committed to him. But if you've done that, if you've tasted that God is good, then long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow. Long for the basics of salvation. Long to know who Jesus is. You want to turn to Hebrews 5. It's so back to your left, a couple books. being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, about all that it just said, about him being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about him learning obedience through suffering, about him becoming the source of eternal salvation, about his de- the days of his flesh with his prayers and supplications, all of that leading up to this point, we have much to say. And it is hard to be explained or it is hard to be uttered in some translations. Since you have become dull of hearing, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Most translations say since he is a babe or since he is a baby. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm not using this and I've heard a lot of preachers use this as a condemnation text or a beat-em-up text where they're going to rebuke you because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's not what I'm using this text for. I'm using this text to show that there is a time and a place for growth. There is a time and a place where you move from the milk to the solid food and you move from the solid food to the reproduction and the teaching stage and you begin to give other people milk and other people solid food. There is that process. But I'm using this to further reiterate the point to show that I'm biblically based on what I'm teaching That as newborn believers, as those that have just come to the faith, you need milk and not solid food. The reason that you need milk is because the solid food will kill you. And I am being very repetitive. And I'm being very repetitive because this is something that I want to seek in. I know when I first got saved, and I actually was talking to Faith about this last night, when I first got saved, anyone that knew something that I didn't aggravated me. It aggravated me because I didn't know everything. And it still does sometimes, I'm not going to lie. It aggravates me when someone says some term that I don't understand or someone has some theology that I haven't yet discovered. It aggravates me. It shouldn't, but it does. It aggravates me because I'm like, why haven't I studied that yet? Why don't I know that yet? And At a certain point, I just have to bite my lip and be like, I'm not God. I'm not the source of all wisdom and knowledge. I don't have to know it all. I want to, but I don't have to. But I want you to understand that there is nothing wrong with being a newborn babe in Christ. There is nothing wrong with needing the milk. What is wrong is if you do a self-assessment and you say that you don't need the milk and so you don't understand things like the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ or things like the working of the atonement and you don't understand who Jesus is, you don't understand the implications of that salvation, you don't understand the penalty of sin, you don't understand those things so you think that you're ready for solid food and then you get choked up and so then your doctrine becomes something that's really more closely borderline to blasphemy or heresy or at very best case a misunderstanding but then you may com- communicate or convey that misunderstanding to someone else and their doctrine may become more twisted than yours and so then it's a downward spiral and in the church we have had this huge problem to where if you go to a restaurant and you order steak and potatoes, you order a huge porterhouse or sirloin steak, I don't know, fill in the blank with your favorite type of steak, and a baked potato on the side, no matter how glorious and glamorous that baked potato is, no matter how much toppings, you know, chives and bacon bits and butter and cheese and onion and everything else you have on that baked potato, even if it's covered in barbecue sauce, no matter what you have on that baked potato, it does not hold center stage. The steak always has prominence. Why? Because you ordered the steak and the potato is a side. The steak is the main dish. The steak is what you're looking at and you're salivating over. But take a bite of the baked potato and choke on it and see which one takes foreknowledge. See which one comes to the forefront of your mind. If you're choking on a piece of that potato because maybe it's undercooked, underdeveloped, You're not thinking about the steak while you've got a piece of potato lodged in your throat. You're thinking about the potato that's lodged in your throat. What we have done in the church is the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice, the deity of Christ, the things that should be the steak have taken a back seat because we have developed these side theologies or the peripheral doctrines and we have underdeveloped them and then put them forth on the mass market And now people are choking on underdeveloped theology, underdeveloped doctrines. We're choking on raw potato because they didn't take the time to enjoy the steak long enough so that the potato could finish its development. We're cooking too fast, taking it out of the oven too soon, and serving it to people while it's still raw. And the same thing can happen. You can put that allegorical picture in any kind of meal that you want. Give somebody raw chicken and see what happens. What I'm saying is we have to let the main thing be the main thing. And we have to acknowledge the fact that there's nothing wrong with desiring the pure milk and admitting that you need just the milk. And once you get to the place to where you can start getting some of that other nutrition, some of that other pureed food, then you can move on in the latter stages and take the steak. And then when you're finally ready, you can go forth and you can be a father and mother of a ministry and you can reproduce that doctrine. And it won't be undercooked. Nobody will choke on it. But people will grow and be nourished and delighted by it, just the way that I'm delighted when I go and I eat a porterhouse steak with a baked potato on the side. Does that make sense? Again, back to the expectancy. We've, we've went through, what is the expectancy of an unformed substance? Because we said we were going to discuss too. The expectancy of an unformed substance is nothing but to become formed and to be burst after experiencing a miscarriage. And there's many people out there. We have friends, uh, specifically friends back in Tennessee, and they they experienced several miscarriages. And some friends, even, even more local, that have experienced the hurt of miscarriages. And once you've experienced that, when you find out that you're pregnant, all you want is for that unformed substance that God has given you. All you want is it to take form and to be born. That's all you want. You don't want it to do anything else. You just want it to grow, to take form, and to be born. That's the expectancy. God deals with us by continually drawing that unformed substance to the point of formation. And God has His hand in it every step of the way. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are expecting too much. And they're driving people away rather than wooing them too. And the great thing about God's prevenient grace or God's provision is even when we're an unformed substance, even when we're not fully in Christ, He still blesses us. It rains on the just just like it rains on the unjust. He still blesses us. He still provides. He does it in a very special way for a believer, but even an unbeliever, He still takes care of him because God is good. As an infant, what's our expectancy? Went over it, we've hammered it. Our expectancy as an infant or a newborn babe is to desire the milk of the Word and grow. Yeah, sure, we're going to have some nasty messes. Anyone that's had a baby knows how nasty that first mess is. It is disgusting. went through an entire pack of wipes on that first diaper. But what I'm saying is, we're going to make messes. That's expected. But we're expected to desire the milk of the Word, and we're expected to grow up in Christ, and to mature, and to pass from a baby to a child how did God deal with us how do you discipline a baby you don't you show them grace you don't discipline a, a chi- an infant that's just a few weeks old I remember my daughter the day that she turned two weeks old she started screaming she would scream from 6am to 6pm every day for four months and every day 12 hours a day you could set your clock to it she had colic 12 hours a day, scream nonstop for four months. You know how we dealt with that? How we disciplined her? We didn't. Even though you wanted to, you, you were angry, we didn't pick her up and shake her, we didn't smack her, we didn't yell at her. We tried to feed her more milk, we tried to rock her to sleep, we tried to hold her, we tried to pat her back, we tried to burp her, we tried to rub her head. We loved her, we showed her grace. Now, if she does something because she's a toddler, yeah, we might smack her hand. But still, we're very, very careful and very graceful in how we discipline our child because she's still a baby. So that's how God disciplines us as a newborn baby. There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of leniency. We do a, we make a lot of messes. We cry a lot. We whine a lot. As Christians, we can become and be some of the whiniest people, which is so terrible. But we can. I can. I can be whiny. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it but we have the tendency to be whiny at times. Because we're like, well, God, if you're so good, then why am I dealing with so much junk? God, if you bless and you provide, then why am I a little bit short of my lot, Bill? We say things like that all the time when the truth of the matter is, just like we went over last week, cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. Give our worry to God because He loves us. He delivers us because He delights in us. And we have to look at things from His perspective. Sometimes... We'll get into that next week. So that's how God disciplines us. How do we bless a newborn baby? By feeding them, by holding them, rocking them, playing with them, trying to get them to coo and to ooh, make baby sounds, buying them toys. He blesses us for no reason at all. There is nothing that my daughter or my son did at the age of a baby, of an infant, they never worked to earn any blessing or any love that I gave them. It was unconditional, unprovoked, unmerited. It was just love because they were mine. And that's the way that God blesses us in that. And the last thing, how should our reaction or how should our response be to God as an infant? Our response to God should be simple. We should just abide in Him. Rest in His arms. Let Him love us. And receive the milk of the word that he has provided for us so that we may grow. Simple, simple, simple. So I want to conclude with this. I don't know how long I've been, but my conclusion is this. We have to get our expectancies of ourselves and our others straight in an understanding of who they are and where they're at. We can't expect babes in Christ to act like elders, but we also can't expect or allow elders to act like babes. People need to step into the level of maturity that they're at. They need to grow and they need to mature in Christ and honor that expectancy. With that being said, I want to extend the opportunity and I do this every Sunday in some manner or another. If you are an unformed substance, your one responsibility or your one expectancy is to become a formed substance and be born again. We have went over this time and time again. We've built the foundation. We've showed what salvation is. It is all of grace of God in Christ by faith forever. That's what, that's what salvation is. It's God's grace given to us through Christ. We receive it by faith and it lasts forever. So if you're an unformed substance and you don't yet know Christ, you haven't yet made that commitment, you haven't yet been born again or born of the Spirit, that opportunity is available now. And if faith was here, I'd have her playing some lovely melody to where everybody would be like, this is the perfect setting to give my life to the Lord. But she's not, and I'm a little bit deficient. But I would just take just a second, just a brief second, Everybody bow your head, close your eyes, and just, if you are saved, then begin to pray in case there is anyone here that is not saved because your prayers will go up and will avail much. Pray together with me. Anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, the opportunity is extended now for you, as Peter says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. For you to pass from death to life. To pass from an unformed substance or a fetus to a newborn babe in Christ. To understand the love of God and to see God in a way that you've never seen before. That opportunity is extended now, so if you would, come forward and we'll pray for you. It won't take long. If there's no one, we'll continue to move on. In closing, I'd like to say this simple statement. God loves you. God is for you. And if He's for you, no one can be against you. It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again and seated on the right hand of the Father that continually makes intercession for us. John takes that theology and runs with it and says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. As a newborn babe, if you are a newborn babe, if you were on the sincere milk of the Word, then I truly want you to understand the grace of God that is for you. If you sin, there's an advocate with the Father. But continue to grow and allow God to conform you to the image of His Son.